What kind of dirt are you? We're going to talk about dirt today, but before we get into that, we have a short passage at the end of Matthew chapter 12 to look at where Jesus teaches us about his family. So flip over to Matthew chapter 12, verse 46. We'll be picking up where we left off last week and our study through the gospel of Matthew. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my mother and who is my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here is my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus' response to his mother and brothers wanting to speak to him sounds odd to us, doesn't it? Is, is Jesus being rude and disrespectful toward his family? No. But we need to remember some things here so that we can understand a little bit about what's happening here. First, there is a big cultural gap between first century Israel and 21st century United States. People don't express themselves in the same way then and now. Second, it's not possible to capture all of the nuances of meaning that were present in the way things were said, the expressions on faces, the body language, and so on. We don't have any of that here to understand what's being said and how it's being said. And then third, Matthew is recording for us only a portion of this event that took place. He's focusing on the things that have particular relevance for his readers. This question that Jesus asked, who is my mother and who is my brothers? It's directed at the crowd of people listening to him, not at his family. Jesus is using this situation as an opportunity to teach. Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, is Jesus saying that our physical families count for nothing? No, he's not saying that. We, we shouldn't see this as an exclusive either-or type thing. It, it's not like either we are part of the family of Jesus or we are part of our biological family, but not part of both. He's not saying that. Instead, we should see this as a comparison of quality and substance. The new family that Jesus has created is better and takes precedence over everything else. He's saying that this new relationship that he establishes with us is deeper, more significant, carries more weight, lasts longer, is more fulfilling, more meaningful, more permanent than every other relationship that we have, including the strongest natural relationship on earth, the relationship we have with our physical family. This new relationship that God establishes with us when we are born again by the Spirit of God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's a spiritual relationship that supersedes all other relationships in our life in quality and in substance. This is an amazing claim that Jesus is making. But those of us who have come into this relationship with God through faith in Christ, who have been born again, and now have the Holy Spirit in us, we know it to be true, don't we? 
Are you familiar with the saying, blood is thicker than water? There's a much older saying, which some believe is where the saying, blood is thicker than water, originally came from. And I shared with this with you a while back, but it's uh, a good reminder for us again. The older saying is this, the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. For a Christian, the blood of the covenant is the lifeblood of Jesus Christ that was spilled at the cross to create a new relationship between us and God. And it's this new relationship that we have with and through Jesus Christ that is indeed thicker than the water of the womb of biological ties. But we now come to the first verse of Matthew 13. It says, That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into the boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. As he often did at that time, Jesus is teaching the people along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And as I've mentioned before, the Sea of Galilee is not really a sea as we typically think of a sea. Instead, it's a freshwater lake, similar in shape, actually, to Lake Tahoe and about one-third its size. The terrain around the lake is not unlike the terrain around Folsom Lake, believe it or not. So to help you imagine what it looked like as Jesus is teaching, you can picture yourself on the shore of Folsom Lake, in the springtime when the lake is full and the vegetation is green. The crowds of people gathering to see and listen to Jesus, they're getting so large that he often teaches from a boat that would be pushed out from the shore a little way. Teaching from a boat like this, it protected Jesus from being crushed by the people as these crowds would surge forward trying to touch him and get close to him. And teaching from a boat let him take advantage of the acoustic qualities of the terrain so that the people could hear him as he projected his voice. It says, then he told them many things in parables. He told them many things. I, I want to make the point that what we have recorded in the gospel books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are only a small part of all that Jesus did and taught. He taught many things to the people, and a lot of that teaching isn't even recorded in the gospel books. John even includes a postscript at the end of his gospel, as you might remember in John 21, 25, where he says, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. A common misconception is to think that the only things Jesus taught are the things found in the four gospel books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But the, teaching of the teachings of the apostles also, also reflect the content of Jesus' teaching. Where do we think the apostles got the stuff that they knew about Jesus and all of the stuff that they teach about Jesus? All of the stuff that we have in all of the writings in the New Testament all of them came from Jesus in one way or another. 
to assume that only the Gospel books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John contain the stuff that Jesus taught and that the rest of the New Testament books contain stuff made up by others is incorrect. The Gospel books and the epistles rely on each other and form a unified whole together. They can't be separated from each other. It's not like the stuff in Matthew is Jesus stuff and the stuff over in Romans is not Jesus stuff. It's all Jesus stuff. And it all ultimately came from Jesus. It says he told them many things in parables. And we've mentioned this before, but a parable is a story, a comparison, an analogy used to illustrate and teach spiritual and moral truth. And Jesus often uses parables in his teachings, couching spiritual truths in these stories and illustrations drawn from common life. The word parable literally means to throw beside. There are two root words in Greek that make up the word parable. Para and balo. Para means beside, and from para we get our word parallel. Balo means to throw. From balo, we get the English word ball, something that you throw. So a parable is something that is thrown beside. He said, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or even thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Jesus ends this parable with a call to pay careful attention. He says, whoever has ears, let them hear. In other words, Jesus is saying, listen carefully to what I'm saying here. Consider it deeply. Think about what I'm telling you. He's giving us a hint that there's more to this story than the story. This story means something. Well, seed was sown in broadcast fashion in those days. The farmer would just fling the seed out with his hand. Now, as you can imagine, the seed would end up getting scattered all over, not just in the best soil of the field. Some seed landed on the hard path or the road, and the birds would come along and eat it up. Some seed landed in rocky places where the topsoil was very thin and sparse, and the the seed germinated and began to grow, but because the soil was so thin, the young plants had no root. The hot sun would scorch the young plants and they would wither and die. Some seed landed among the thorns and other weeds. The weeds grew up and it would choke the plants, preventing them from maturing. Some seed, though, landed in the rich Topsoil of the seed germinated and grew and matured, producing a beautiful crop. Now, do you think you would have understood the underlying meaning of this parable if you had heard it for the very first time with no explanation given? The people listening to Jesus at that time, they didn't understand it very well, not even his closest disciples. And it's doubtful, really, that you and I would have caught on to it either, right? 
The thing that separates people is not the level of understanding that they have, but their desire to know and understand. Notice what happens in this next story. It's important for us to see that. The real disciples of Jesus, those who are really followers, those who are really wanting to know him, they stick around and they ask him to help them understand the parable. The real disciples of Jesus, they're not those who know everything, but those who want to know him and they pursue knowing him. It's still the same in our own day. Those who really want to know Jesus are going to seek after him and put the time and the effort in to get to know him and to learn from him. Don't be discouraged by the trouble you may be having with understanding things in the Bible, for example. Do you want to know Jesus Christ? Then keep at it. Don't give up. It's, if it's, it is your desire to know him that matters much more than how much you actually know in the moment. You will increase in understanding as you continue to seek after him. In verse 10, it says, The disciples came to him and they asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? See, they're seeking to understand. And he replied, Because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they will not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become callous. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see but did not see it and to hear what you hear but did not hear it. There were many people who didn't care to really know and understand Jesus. They didn't take to heart his admonition to really listen and realize that there is more to the story than the story. There were, for example, the religious leaders, who we have seen many times already, who were just looking for a way to discredit Jesus. There were the people who wanted to see a show and to be entertained. They wanted to see miracles, but they weren't interested in the weightier things that Jesus was teaching. They would say, that, that's a nice story, Jesus. Now, when are you going to do another miracle for us? Entertain us. The basic truth is being taught here that we also noticed in Matthew eleven twenty five, In verse 12, it's saying that our response to Jesus and his teaching is the condition for receiving and understanding more of Jesus and his teaching. Where there is rejection and no response, even the ability to respond will diminish. Like the atrophy of muscles that are not used. If we don't use what we have, we will eventually lose even what we have. 
But the more we listen and understand and apply, the more we will be able to listen and understand and apply. Verse 14 is a quotation from Isaiah 6, 9 and 10. Isaiah was describing the hard-hearted people of Israel who had repeatedly turned their back on the Lord, stubbornly refusing to listen to Him. The same attitude is present among many of the people in the crowd gathered around Jesus, especially the religious leaders. And as the prophecy in Isaiah suggests, their repeated refusal to listen will eventually become their judgment, cutting them off from being healed, saved, rescued, helped. The parables were a way of separating those with faith from those without faith, separating those who wanted to really know Jesus from those who were only interested in being entertained and wanted to discredit Him. The parables would reveal truth and conceal truth at the same time. If someone wanted to go below the surface of the story and know who Jesus is and learn from him, he was gladly do that and generous to do that for them. Jesus was not trying to prevent people from knowing him and receiving salvation and understanding what he was saying, but he was not going to play their games. To use another one of his parables, he was not going to throw his pearls to pigs and have them trampled into the mud under their feet. So he begins to explain this parable in verse 18 for his disciples. He says, listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. So the farmer in this parable is Jesus Christ himself. And the seed that the farmer is sowing, scattering, spreading, planting, is the message about the kingdom, the message about Jesus Christ himself, the teachings of Jesus, the gospel. Now keep in mind that the farmer and the seed are the same throughout this parable. What is different are the types of ground, the soils, the patches of dirt. The same potential life-containing seed is given to everyone. How a person responds to the seed, the message about Jesus, is different and that's what determines if fruit is produced or not. When sowing seed, a flock of birds would often follow behind the farmer, hoping to pounce on the seed that fell on the hard path or the road. Seed that fell on the path of the road, it was easy for the birds to pick up and eat. Some people are like the hard ground or the path or the road, Jesus says. The word of God never penetrates their heart. Satan, the birds, come along and steal the word from them before it has a chance to germinate or even begin to take root. They have no appreciation for the message about Jesus. They reject it or they ignore it outright. These people might say something like, Jesus said some nice things, but I don't believe he's the Messiah. He isn't for me. I don't need him to be my Savior. I'm not interested in taking his claim seriously. 
verse 20. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. So some people, he says, are like the shallow soil found in rocky places. The seed sprouts up quickly, but when, but, but when the sun comes up, it quickly dies because there isn't enough soil for the plant to get firmly rooted. Those people initially received the word, he says, the, the message about Jesus with joy and excitement, but when difficulty, trouble, persecution comes, they fall away. They have no depth. The, the word never takes hold in them. These are people who perhaps recognize the value of Jesus Christ. They recognize their need for Jesus Christ. They believe the message is true. They like what Jesus appears to be offering, but they never let Jesus and his word sink into their life. They never enter into a meaningful relationship with Jesus Christ. People like neat packages and formulas and recipes for life. Formulas and recipes, they give us a sense of security and control and accomplishment. Unfortunately, they are almost always an oversimplification of reality. So when life presents us with a situation that the formula can't handle, disillusionment can occur. When a person only embraces the ideas and moral ideals and traditions of Christianity without a life-transforming relationship with God through Jesus Christ, it will ultimately let them down and not be what they hope it will be. It will fail. Christianity is not a set of principles for life. Christianity is not a set of steps to follow to be successful. Christianity is not a nice tradition to raise your kids with. Christianity is a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. These other things might follow as a benefit, but they are not it. When we are in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, we know Him and we know He knows us and we trust Him with our very being. When difficulty comes into our life, we lean harder into the Lord rather than fall away. Rather than questioning the goodness of God, we see Him as our lifeline for surviving the pain and the hardship. We cling to God more rather than let go of Him. The Word of God produces no results in this person's life because the Word of God never takes root in them. There is no relationship with God. Christ is not in them. There is only some ideas and traditions. If our Christianity is just ideas and traditions, then our Christianity is next to worthless. Twenty-two. It says, the seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. So some people are like ground that is full of weeds and thorns. And this ground has the potential to be good soil, but it lacks proper care. 
these people, they hear the word, they recognize their need for Jesus Christ, they accept the message, they take hold of it, but they're preoccupied with other things. They let interest in other things and worries consume them. They seek after material material riches rather than spiritual riches. They desire the admiration of their peers over the admiration of God. They desire the things of this world over the things of God. They live a life of distractions. They let the worries of this life overshadow the peace that could be theirs because their foundation is in this world rather than in the Lord. The good things that the Word of God begins to produce in them get choked out by the weeds of this life. This doesn't mean that we can't have other interests in life besides the Lord. But when our love for other things compete with our love for the Lord, that's trouble. Good soil allows no competition to exist. We need to have a relationship with the Lord as our primary soulmate. The Word of God doesn't produce the intended results in this person's life. They don't grow spiritually. They don't mature. They're stunted. They don't experience the life transformation that should be taking place in them. Verse 23 says, But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the Word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. So finally, some people are like good soil. The seed sprouts and it sinks its roots deep into the soil, growing and producing a crop. These people, they hear the word, they accept it into their life, they follow it, they allow it to develop deep roots in them. They have a real relationship with the Lord that gives them strength and resilience in life. Have you ever noticed the root system of a healthy plant in rich soil? The roots are intertwined throughout the soil. That's the kind of relationship that we want to have with the Lord. We want His Word to be intertwined throughout our life. We want the roots of His Word running all through us. I want to make a quick clarification about what is a fruitful life. Because it's unfortunate that we sometimes think success in the kingdom of God is like success in the world, and they're not the same. A fruit-bearing life is not a person who is accomplishing great things for God. That's not a fruitful life that Jesus is talking about here. Now, they might accomplish great things for God, and that's fantastic. But instead, a fruit-bearing life is a life in which God is doing good things in. A life that exhibits the fruit of the Holy Spirit. A life that has the qualities of the new life and nature of Jesus Christ growing in them. The Holy Spirit is producing in us fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, Self-control, that's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. A fruit-bearing life is a life that's growing in Christ-likeness, a life that is becoming more and more like Jesus. 
in closing this morning, the big idea for us to take hold of is be good dirt. Amen. And I think many of us, we find ourselves moving back and forth between being good dirt and weedy, thorny dirt. We have the potential to be good dirt, but we're not always tending to our life very well. We let the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, the desire for other things choke out the word. We live with divided devotion. We live a life of distractions. And the result is a lack of good fruit of the Holy Spirit being produced in us. What do we do to be good dirt? We need to listen to Jesus. Remember, Jesus ended the parable with those words, whoever has ears, let them hear. We need to listen to the words of Jesus, take them to heart, and follow them. We need to trust in the Lord through life's difficulties. In the parable, one of the reasons the seed fails to grow and produce fruit in a life is because the difficulties and worries of this life choke it out. Well, here's a little parable to go with this parable. What does a farmer do to improve the soil? Well, he adds nutrients to the soil, doesn't he? And in the old days, and I've shared this one before, in the old days, the way that was done was by spreading and mixing manure into the soil. The manure in our life are the difficulties and the trials that we face. And we can let that manure choke out the word or we can trust the Lord and let that manure cause the word to flourish in our life. Let the farmer mix the manure into the soil of our life to add nutrients for a beautiful harvest to be the result. James is saying that in James 1-2 when he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials, manure, of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith, the manure, produces perseverance, fruit. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So we need to trust in the Lord through life's difficulties. We need to seek after spiritual riches rather than material riches. Jesus warns us about the deceitfulness of wealth. 1 Timothy 4.8, Paul wrote, Physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. The reorienting of our priorities and our focus from physical to spiritual. Finally, we need to make the Lord our greatest love and allow no competitors. Jesus tells us the greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all of our strength. Let's be good dirt.
bow our heads. Lord, we thank you for your good word. And we pray that your word would take root in our life and we would be that good soil that your word entwines and fills every crevice of us, Lord, as you grow inside of us and you produce a beautiful crop in our life. As we take on the nature and the character of Jesus, as we become like you, Lord. I ask that you would encourage each one here today. Remind us of your goodness and your grace and that you are the one that we rely on, we look to. In Jesus' name, amen.